Please listen carefully. I'm here with Mark Britz. Mark, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Mark, we've had a, a couple of conversations prior to, to this one because I, I reached out to you after I read a couple of, how do you call it, blogs or articles on LinkedIn. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to LinkedIn for, for hooking us up here and uh, also grateful for you to spend your time on this talk here we will have on this podcast. Well, thanks for discovering me. Uh, it's good to be here. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, Mark, specifically, the article of the friction of logic. Yeah. And, and that, well, that is one of the angles that I'm really, really curious about personally at the moment. So we're going to probably dig into that and all of your professional work and, and, and interest and so on. But for those who don't know you and haven't uh, heard about you before, um, how would you describe your uh, professional career and, and what you're doing now? Yeah, let's uh, let's let's um, we'll work backwards a little bit, I guess, in in. Basic terms, I'm a, a workplace uh, performance professional. You know, the idea, and I say performance over learning because my mindset has shifted um, easily in the last like 10 to 15 years. I'm definitely what you refer to as a social aficionado, right? So I, I really see the value of not just social technology, but digging a lot deeper into the psychology and sociology, which, you know, we can we could talk about that today. But um, for me, my background is uh, I was a teacher as a public ed teacher. Um, you know, I came out of college thinking that was going to be my career. I was going to teach kids history. And I also got a master's degree in inclusive education. And for people who don't know what inclusive education is, it is creating environments um, for people with multiple different abilities. Mostly we refer to this as disabilities. To be able to be included, not separated, not segregated from their non-disabled peers. And it kind of opened my eyes about how do we create good environments for everybody to engage and learn and learn from each other. Um, so it was kind of revolutionary um, in, in that respect. And in around 2000, uh, year 2000, I had an opportunity to uh, take on a different position. And I went with a company called Smartforce. I left public education because I said, why not? Um, you know. <laughs> I was young then, and I figured, you know, that was the time to play. And um, at SmartForce, we built e-learning simulations, and the simulations were based on conversations. So you learn through conversation. There's a lot of uh, Roger Shanks theories that were behind it okay. um, in terms of experiential kind of pieces and story uh, nature. So it was at that time and definitely before social media and Web 2.0 that, that uh, I really got enlightened to the idea how we learn through each other and from each other um, and through experience and making mistakes. And that carried forward as I, as I moved into instructional design work and I started heading up learning and development. Uh, my last position before joining the e-learning guild a couple of years back was the head of learning and development at a small um, IT company. And the focus there was really just about How do we build better social connections so people can share knowledge? And uh, that's where I'm at today, my mindset about performance and learning and what we can do in organizations to make them stronger. So when you, when you look back to the situation, we say, why not? Let me, let me make a switch from uh, public ed to, to the new journey you entered there. What has tickled your interest and kept, kept you going within this field so long? You know, it's fascinating, I think, is because It's all about building these networks. I remember getting, working on my second master's. I was working for my second master's in, in instructional design. 
And at the same time, I started discovering blogs and I started discovering Twitter. And I started, you know, this is like 2007, 2008. And I was learning so much more through these people who are just readily sharing their knowledge and their ideas and having these great conversations. And it took me back to, you know, being at SmartForce and developing these simulations and how people really learn. And I stopped my program. I just stopped it cold. I said, I don't need this degree because I'm learning so much more through the network. And so to answer your question, for me, it's been very much the network keeps me digging even deeper. You know, like I said, I I came at this as, you know, an education teacher, very much about, you know, control and objectives and, you know, Madeline Hunter and and Gagne and the ideas of creating lesson plans and, and really tailoring instruction to this more open, you know, network idea and this this more uh, free thinking and sharing. And it's because of my network. They keep presenting new ideas that I just, I'm, you know, compelled to explore. With that long uh, journey of, of working within this field, today, what are the, I know we have a lot of different topics and I know that a lot of the things that we talked about prior here is that, hey, you actually have, we could talk for many hours on different elements here. No worries about, no, no problem <laughs> on that. What would you say are the key head topics, the head concept, key concepts, sorry, that yeah. tickled your your mind that probably dig into? I think one of the big things I would talk about is, you know, what I've come to in my journey is I've moved backwards from the idea of changing beliefs directly in people's performance to the greater understanding of the systems that people work in, uh, that people live in, you know, that that there's really kind of this unconscious guiding force of organizational design. You know, I don't come from a background in organizational design. There's a lot of study. I don't want to ever say that, you know, that I have this immense background, but there's no question that in every organization I've been in as a learning professional, I started to see that there's these systems that really kind of drive the behaviors in an organization. Mm. Uh, and those behaviors over time create beliefs and, you know, why, why people do what they do, the old status quo, and they get stuck in that story. Um, and so it's, to me, it's like, I think L&D in particular spends a great deal of time and executives do too, to say, change this behavior, change this behavior directly. Let's have training. Let's offer these courses and these performance support resources, which are good. But if you don't adjust the system, you know, and, and what I mean by system, you know, it, and, and when I say organizational design, it sounds really lofty and heavy, <laughs> but, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it's very much, uh, you know, how are decisions made in the organization? How do you recognize and reward people in the organization? How do, how do you hire? You know, how do you, how do you elevate employees? How, how are leadership, what is, how do you define leadership and how are just, you know, those type of pieces? Because those really kind of set the parameters of what people will do uh, unconsciously in the organization. If you don't adjust those, then any direct behavior change you try, uh, it's really hit or miss if it's gonna stick. You know, they're gonna be pulled back to center. This is, this is what works here. And they'll be taken out of that. So, you know, that's the big picture for me. Hmm. It makes me think about that I have experienced uh, not not only once but many times, and also through my network of conversations throughout the years that we've had these incentives of a performance cult in a performance culture where we we only reward and and recognize you based on your KPI performance, you could yeah. say, yeah. and. The, a lot of the conversation that's taking place is more along the line of okay, we also hope, but also ex- and also expect of you as a leader to put the human and the people first and develop them and and secure that they have the right behavior and mm-hmm. um, they will be a success when they have this behavior and so forth, mm-hmm. and nothing happens. Okay. Ah, black and white explained, but but the 
pretty much we haven't addressed the system of how we reward and and recognize people, right? Correct. So uh, you've probably touched that touched those experiences as well. Yeah, I think it, you know I've had it. You know, again, experiential learning. I've watched it. I've watched how I've been affected by my organization. You know, it's like again, it's like it's the old you know people are saying like you know do as i say not as i do uh but at the same time it's like you are watching you know people are watching <laughs> my people and my executives my leadership my manager in particular if they're doing these things if i want to succeed and survive and thrive in this organization i probably got to follow that path consciously so but behind all that is a system at play that needs to be addressed if you truly want to change behavior and that's that's one of the really interesting elements about this conversation that we're going to have because a lot of the work I'm doing and especially in the past has been focused on how can we inspire people mm-hmm. to go from a present behavior to a, a kind of a new behavior, you would say, right? right. With all the elements into play and how, what, what, what happens there. And here about taking a larger picture and focusing, focusing not only on the behavior but focusing on the systems behind it. Um, for those who have not heard about this this idea of systems, behaviors, and beliefs, how would you explain that to people who have never heard about it before or thought about it before? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a it's you know honestly I think it's more about just pausing and looking in your own organization to to better understand what's at play. You know, we make a lot of decisions, like I said, unconsciously. You know, and decisions that lead to our behavior. We make a choice and we we do X. But sometimes we have to look and say, why am I doing this? You know, why is this? Because if you just mapped it out, you'd understand that humans basically, they, 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 they want more pleasurable experiences and they want less painful experiences. You know, we know <laughs> that if we go this Surprisingly. Way, yeah, it makes somebody happy, you know, and therefore happiness leads to greater financial reward or the opportunity to rise up in an organization. Um, so I think it starts with just kind of assessing where you are, looking, looking at why you as an individual are doing what you do. Um, and understand, too, your leadership and why they are, in fact, going in this particular direction. I mean, organizations are changing. I think, I think a lot of the organizations people work in today, a lot of them, they were, they're all found, they were all built in the 20th century. You know, it was a different mindset around the nature of work and workers and the structure of an organization. And now they're being challenged. They're being challenged by, you know, challenges in the marketplace and challenges of new technology. And we hear about this lofty term of digital transformation. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, how do we change? Well, it starts with people and it starts with those processes that they're asking them to engage in and and being a part of. So, again, start with yourself. Look closely at what your own context is and what's happening. uh, And then really have those open dialogues about why we do certain things in an organization. And what if we made this one tweak? It's not a big thing. You know, I think Jim Collins said it best in his book, From Good to Great. Uh, actually, it was his research that went into Good to Great, if you're familiar with that book. Yeah, I've read it, yeah. And I think uh, in 1999, which is a fascinating year, 1999, 2000, all these great you know, doctrines and, and ideas and manifestos all came out. But at that time, he talked about, um, uh, uh, I think it was catalytic mechanisms. You know, the idea if you make one little change over here, it's going to have ripple effects and ramifications. You know, if you want to change, you know, for example, for me, if you want to increase knowledge sharing in an organization, which is going to strengthen your organization, it's going to reduce a lot of costs around training. If people are openly sharing what they do, then maybe you got to start recognizing and rewarding uh, more of the inputs that people have than the outputs that people do. The KPI you know, conversation, right? So it's, instead of measuring on these outputs and outcomes, how about we put a little emphasis more on you know, how people are sharing or collaborating and recognizing that and rewarding that behavior? It'll change a new mindset. That's really interesting because in my in my field here and what I've seen uh, and worked 
more on in, in recent years is yeah. not only focusing on the KPIs, actually looking at what creates or what has created the KPIs. The, maybe the loophole here in, in positive and bad is that I would tend to focus on the behavior then. Yeah. And yeah. say what behavior created in this retail store, in the, this area manager's area, what behavior does this leader have that creates his KPIs, you could say. Right. That's a really interesting process. And from talking to you and reading some of your stuff, I'm getting also the mindset of, hmm, maybe that's a little bit too narrow only to focus on that. It's maybe a 360 on what are the actions, you could say, yeah. but also what is the system that supports his behavior or her behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been criticized for it a little bit. And then recently somebody said, Mark, I don't think it's so linear. That's so simple. You know, and I was in a tweet and I'm like, well, I got 280 characters. I can't. <laughs> I can't. <I'm> like, <laughs> the classical read, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. But I think in a sense, it's like, no, you can't deny the fact that beliefs matter uh, and that you, you and, and training does matter. But if you're not addressing all these factors at once, you're going to miss the mark. Interesting. You said something about that was the key concept is the thing about organizational design, systems, behaviors, beliefs. Is there anything we need to touch upon in this field still before we can move on to maybe another concept of yours or idea of yours? Honestly, I think that is the, the overarching you know, yeah. idea. I, I think that for me, a big piece to it all is you know, we talk about the, when you address the systems and you want more of what we believe an organization should look like, that, that human work that we hear a lot about, right? the idea of a, a responsive or agile organization it's a social organization. You know, it's, a, it's an organization to me that is having the open conversations and has more transparency. And those are big lofty words because a lot of people look at it and say, well, Mark, what do you mean by transparency? You know, how is openness different than those things? But it is really kind of like the internal process of let, letting people be less inhibited in the organization. We talk about failing and it's okay to fail and hmm. and it is until the organization struggles. But, you know, it's like <laughs> that's typically what happens. But it really comes down to like, you know, how, how open and honest can we be uh, with our employees, with our levels to recognize that, you know, leadership is ephemeral, right? The idea that somebody can be really good over here. And um, that that's part of the engagement puzzle for a lot of companies, too, and keeping talent is maintaining that openness and that. So there's a lot of factors that come into it for me. You know, in terms of the systems, behavior and beliefs, there is this trust and these relationships, the softer stuff that, that really matters to make organizations successful. And in my experience, that, that, of course, challenges, you know, the 19th century century mindset. I'm really being very, uh, how do you say that? I'm probably going to simplify it a little bit too much now, but yeah, it challenges the old performance mindset a lot. Yes. It, it, and then another link about, okay, if we talk about, if we believe in the things about different generation types and, and, and characteristics and so on, that would also add an, an, a narrative also on that one. And then you would also probably have just another aspect of the cross pressure of leadership that, that I have, all, you know, if you're a middle manager like I am, there is also, there is a responsibility not only to lead downwards, but also to lead upwards. That's right. That's and, right. And, and just navigating in that process and also leading across the organization and so forth, you, it's, it's also a, a, a complexity that needs to be taken into account if you want a transparent, uh, yep. honest, that there's a lot of factors here. There is. And I think you touched on something there. I think it's really critical. And I've mentioned this before sometimes is like um, the role of middle management. You know, the role of the manager in an organization. Um, one of the things I think people forget when they talk about trying to get leadership buy-in to change, you hear that a lot and my, your mindset automatically goes to the C-suite, you know, the CEO and the CLO and, the, and those, those really the chief officers in an organization that you feel like got to have their buy-in. And I'd argue that no, 
You know, if you're trying to get the the ground forces, the workforce to change their behavior, right, um, then it really starts with that middle management group because most middle managers, especially, excuse me, most employees in a large, large organization, they're not looking that far up the hierarchy at what the executives are doing. They're they're looking at that middle manager because that's the one evaluating them. You know, that's the one that's setting the direction for them. And if you can get that middle manager to kind of shift their particular behaviors, right, their strategy or systems of how they do and conduct or expect work to be done, I guarantee you the workforce that follows, you know, them will change faster than if you try and focus your energy on the very highest levels of the organization. That flips back because that's very interesting for me to hear also because and not not to share too much about it's not about me this conversation but in the work I'm doing specifically uh, now there has been previously a lot of dialogue about should this be where should we start yeah, yeah. should we start top down or should we start bottom up or you know and maybe the maybe the answer is as you say in the middle yeah <laughs> i hate saying this but i mean you know a lot of times you know there's people who come out and they have a directive and this is how you do it And that's that old you know, mindset in, uh, around the idea of using best practices. And I think that's dangerous in, in, in the world of business because if you try and plug and play you know, somebody else's strategy or techniques or approaches, but you don't have a really good handle on that, that term culture um, or how leadership is conducted in the organization or you know, that piece, then that plug and play approach is going to fail. It's better, it's better to look at best principles. And that's going to dictate whether, you know, can I start from the ground up? You know, should I start in the middle? Um, or is it really executives? I think the smaller an organization is, you know, you have a better chance because I think a lot of that collaboration and that communication um, that we look for in organizations or we want to see is already happening. You know, those organizations that are 25, 50, 75, 125 employees are still really connected. You know, they're still working late nights together. They're getting pizza together. They're not worried about whose parking spot they're in. You know, that hierarchy has not solidified just yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The opportunity to, like, say, we can start here, meaning everywhere with the, with the direction we want to go. But as you get bigger, you know, the larger it is, the more fractioned an organization becomes, then you have to look more strategically at where can we start based on this culture. Hmm. As far as I remember, you, you were primarily focused on small and medium-sized companies, right, in, in terms of your work at the moment. Yeah, it's it's definitely a passion of mine is looking at those. I think I think you know to give you a reason why there's a there's a lot of heavy interest in the very very large corporations out there. So if I'm going to dabble in that area, I got way too much competition. <laughs> <laughs> But I, in all honesty, I think the smaller businesses, it's not about fixing them, right? Because I think in a lot of ways, the smaller mid-sized businesses have it right. The danger for them is keeping it. You know, it's maintaining, you know, what works and keeping a connected workforce, because like I said, as they grow, they start to separate. And sometimes social technology and social strategies can keep them closer knit together and survive in this much more complex market space. Okay, so that was that was a key, the overall key concept here that we've covered now. Yeah. And if there will be something that you will not have had the opportunity to say i know you will not sleep tonight and then you can always uh we can always get back to a second conversation on that one let's fire up the skype again and start <laughs> yeah exactly so um what are what are the underlying concepts that that tickle your interest here i heard you say something about that social is not only the digital aspect here it's uh, something it's it's a, a lot more this like the psychology also on the social aspects of it right yeah yeah we've touched on it a little bit in this conversation that i think We live in an age where, you know, technology is is seen as the savior in organizations. You know, it's like we can automate, you know, certain processes. 
uh, social technology seems to be where everybody wants to start. They go off and they buy, you know, a, a tool, a, a platform, and they plug it in and they go, nobody's using it, or nobody's using it as we'd hoped. You know, they're they're sharing vacation photos, but they're not talking about work. Yeah, or and, or sorry, interrupting you, or they, they you know, we, they they buy the system and then they think, oh shit, we need to we need to make some content for this. Yeah, and then <laughs> and that's it, and then they have this they have this ghost town. Uh, and I think what it is, is ultimately is we jump the gun sometimes, you know, it's like, for example, I got myself, you know, uh, a, a new Apple watch and, you know, I, I run as we talked about. Um, but having an Apple watch doesn't make me more fit, right? It, it's, it's still a behavior I've got to undertake, right? It's still, you know, it's going to help me measure things and possibly motivate. But if I'm not already engaged in exercise and running and all those things, the, then this technology is not really going to help me that much. And I think, that's where it comes into play where people, you know, they get the technology and like I said, they turn it on and nothing happens and they, they blame the technology and nobody wants to look at our culture. They don't want to look at the organization itself and say, are we doing things in this business to inhibit people from sharing? Um, you know, one of the things we always talk about is knowledge silos, you know, that people are, are already like, why would I share my, my knowledge? It's my capital. You know, why would I give that away? Because that's going to empower somebody else. There's very competitive natures in our organizations versus cooperative. Until you get those things right, that sociology in the organization, then you're not going to have those tools are never going to be as effective. Yeah, it's going to block. Yeah. Yeah. With the companies that you are working with, uh, that you talk about through your network and connections and so forth, what is the status of our ability to work with systems, behaviors, and beliefs, and also our ability to not only focusing on a stroke of a pen decision to buy a, a digital platform, or you could say, but actually work on the sociology and the psychology of the business as well? Yeah, the state of it, I think, you know, if you read things, and we're still very much stuck, you know, in the mindsets around individuals as leaders, um, we're still stuck in kind of an industrial mindset of outputs and outcomes. There's a lot of great talk, you know, about the humanizing organizations. There's a lot of great talk about these pieces, but it's really slow in coming. And a lot of the attention for a lot of people is, you know, they read the articles on Inc. and they read the articles on Forbes. And it's all these lofty, large organizations who are doing, you know, these changes or or trying to create a small uh, innovation hub outside of the business. And they're missing the point. You know, they're missing the point of of having to let go of some of the, the controls that they've put into place. And it really comes down to uh, the idea that, you know, what got them there is not going to get them to the next level. Uh, but when you don't have pain, you know, when you're a co when your company is successful, you look at it and say, well, it's not broke. Why would I fix it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Index 150, that's pretty good. Maybe we could have reached index 200 if we want to focus like that. Yeah. Right. But, it's, you know, again, most people are looking at quarterly returns in their organizations. You know, the large organizations are driven by that. And, and that is dangerous because it's not necessarily the long term thinking that they need to have to maintain talent and, you know, continue to you know, address the challenges of, of the outside coming inside. So, you know, again, I think that's why I, I tend to focus on the smaller mid-sized businesses because I think, you know, they have the greatest chance, I think, in this new economy um, to kind of get things right in terms of how they perform inside so they perform inside exceptionally. Cool. So I need to hear about this concept of the friction of logic. That, uh, that made me very curious to talk with you, Mark. Uh, what, what is that all about? So, yeah, so it's it's kind of funny. I, I, I listened to Gary Vaynerchuk quite a bit. I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, He's yeah. A, yep, CEO, VaynerMedia. 
he's got a huge presence out there. He's kind of the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. And after you cut through some of the hype around the guy, you know, he's got some very interesting insights about the state of the world, you know, the state of connection and what technology is doing. And one of the things he talked about one time I thought was really fascinating was that Amazon um, was looking to possibly get a deal um, with the National Football League in the United States to broadcast some of their particular sporting events, some of the football games. And, you know, you think about it, I'm like, okay, so they're going in this particular direction now. Their business, their core business isn't that, though. Their core business is sales, right? And, and one of the things that everybody's always trying to do at that level is they want to get in front of the consumer as quick as possible to make a decision. What Gary said in that that was really fascinating in that story was he said, here's how it'll play out. So the Amazon, you know, you'll be watching the football game with your friends and your favorite player on your favorite team catches the game winning pass. Well, Amazon would know that you're watching through their network that too, that you own certain, you know, uh, jerseys and hats and all this, you know, uh, merchandise of your favorite team. And in an instant on your phone would appear a deal for 20 percent off of that player's jersey because they know you well enough. And really the friction of logic comes in. It's about the idea that we, we tend to use reason, but emotion gets ahead of reason all the time, right? We have this emotional reaction. So the moment that touchdown is scored and that player, you know, is, 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 and you get this, you know, you automatically are like, oh my God, I want that jersey. You know, I want that. <laughs> yeah. And they're getting in between before your reason can kick in and slow you down to have those internal questions of, do I really need this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do I need this? Do I have enough of this already? Do I have the money for this? Yeah. So that is the ultimate, you know, opportunity is to get ahead of the, the logical brain. And it made me think a little bit about what happens in organizations. It's very similar to that, especially with knowledge sharing. You know, it's like there's these moments where we know that, you know, employee number 64 over in cubicle number 371 has this great idea. And, you know, if he was or she was uninhibited, she would readily share that information with the company as a whole or her team or her executive leadership. And there's this moment where she doesn't. She starts to wonder, like, oh, how will this be perceived? You know, will if I if I don't type this the right way, if I don't share this in the right context, am I going to be judged differently? Because that's the system she works in. She works in the system that inhibits her 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 emotional response of helping this organization and helping her peers is she starts to look through, oh, if I share this, I'm giving away power because I have knowledge of something that could benefit my career and not the organization. So logic is friction in this case, right? We, we want that emotional response. We want the free flow of ideas, but we also know that organizations can sometimes punish those people for, for you know not having exactly right or it's half-baked ideas and they're like, get judged for that. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Okay, so that returns to the how is the system designed, how is the organizational design of the company here. Yep. So that makes me curious, and maybe also a couple of the listeners would ask the natural question. So how would I approach this? Yeah. You know, if I'm an organization, small, medium, maybe even larger scale, how would I approach this? You know, it, it, it comes down to, you know, what you and Semple, who I loved his book, uh, Organizations Don't Tweet, People Do. I don't know if you're familiar with Ewan. No, I he never said, heard about it. Yeah, he said for a long time, he goes, change happens one conversation at a time. And if you can scale those small examples is, is really important. So, you know, big change in organization is going to take baby steps. But social technology in an organization allows those small examples 
to get elevated and amplified very quickly. You know, a quick story for you. In one of the organizations I worked in, there was problems with people submitting their their time cards on time uh, in digital time cards. They were all contractual workers or our own internal workers who were working on multiple IT projects, you know, uh, throughout the throughout the company. And at the end of the day, they were supposed to record all this information because if we didn't have that recorded, we couldn't charge the government, you know, for the the bill on that. And what ended up happening was people just weren't doing it. They were still, you know, there was no carrot or stick. They, you know, they just weren't doing it. And my my chief operating officer at the time was just beside himself and really hammering those people underneath him to get the word out that we need these done, we need these done. And nothing was changing, nothing at all. And finally, in a conversation when he was working with me to possibly send me around the, into all the offices throughout the country to like do a training on the time card you know, process, <laughs> I said, well, how do you know they can't do it? Um, it you know, it doesn't seem that hard. Uh, we started talking and I said, you know, what does it mean? You know, that that when these when we don't get that money from the government, you know, and the millions of dollars are left on the table, what does it mean to this employee? And he said, ultimately, it'll affect their bonuses. And I'm like, do they know that? And the answer was no. And I said, you know, the moment you're transparent about that, the moment you let them know we're all in this together and this affects you personally, the, the more opportunity we have that people will be conscious of doing these activities for the right reason, their own, in this case, their own. So in the end, I just simply said to him, why don't you post in our internal network, you know, that you need help, that you don't, you can't do this yourself, that you've thought of things, but like, what are other people doing out there? How do we solve this problem? And that was very hard for him. You know, he was he was, you know, the old school chief operating officer who had to be humble. And but the moment he did it, the outpouring of solutions and suggestions from levels two, three deep in the organization started to flow in one conversation at a time. So here was a change in this person's perception about being a leader. And he manifested that in a post. And that started conversations, which, in fact, led to more people completing the, the process without any training. Yeah, without any training. Without any training. That's interesting. Thank you for clarifying this about the friction of logic. I also remember that you had an interesting take on the 70-20-10. How does your mind play with that terminology from uh, from blended learning here? Yeah, so 70, I came to 70-20-10, you know, well, it's part of this whole evolution in my thinking about how people learn in organizations. And obviously, as you just noted, there's a lot of people out there who, as soon as they hear 70, 20, 10, they, they get all up in arms that it's too, it's too concrete and these numbers are too pure. They, you know, this is wrong. But the reality is, you know, 70, 20, 10 basically means that most of what we learn, we learn through our experiences, you know, getting, doing, doing the actual work. Uh, a lot of what we learn comes through our peers, that 20%, quote unquote, um, you know, sharing ideas and information with each other, getting feedback. And of course, about 10%. You know, the lowest amount is coming through training. And, you know, for me, um, a lot of people will say, well, it's a 70-20-10 model. And I hate the word model because I think that makes it very prescriptive. We have to build to this. And there was a lot of danger in that early on when people were like, oh, we got to make every learning opportunity or the most learning opportunities have to be experiential. And they tried to formulate it. What I like to say is that 70-20-10 is much more like gravity. You know, it's the idea that gravity is a principle. It, it, it exists. We can't deny it. Right. We know it, we have this pressure on us all the time. Right. Hold, holding us down. Um, but 70, 20, 10 exists. It's a reality. So now what do you do about it? Right. So now, you know, that people learn their experience doing their job. How do you get what they're learning in the job out to everybody else? Right. How do you 
for example, you know, if you know that a, a lot of way we learn an organization is through uh, personal connections and sharing knowledge, how do we grow coaching and mentoring in organizations? We already know this to be true. So how do we enhance it? You know, how do we amplify these things? How do we make our training better so that, you know, or more refined so that not everything is training, but really what needs to be trained is, you know, we're using training technology for that. So it's a different way of looking at it because I think a lot of people criticize 702010, but they're missing the point. You know, they're missing the point that these, I think if anything, what 702010 did was reawakened the idea that people learn in other ways besides courses and classes. And it makes me think about the uh, a lot of the work that we're doing here and in, in the company I work in. Mm -hmm. And I think we're on a really good journey in terms of this, where you could say that it's, it's you would probably say you haven't used the words yet, but I think you have the same mindset here that it's it's all about the context. It's not about the content. Yes, right. And, and that mindset of, you know, Nick Shackleton Jones and point of work from Gary Wise. And yes. I know we have a mutual connection in, in him as well. Right. And I'm really my next book will be how we learn from Nick. Nick, I'm really looking forward to reading that book. Yeah. Um, but but in terms of that, I think some interesting experiments or experiences we are doing as a, as a department at the moment is that we are with this context in mind and this friction terminology in, in, in mind as well, we are really keen on addressing and understanding the friction of each individual leader. Yes. Because as you say, yeah, it's, the indiv it's an individual challenge, situation, challenge, uh, questions they have. Um, like David James would say that I'm also inspired from, from, from Loop in, in the UK. That's really, really an interesting process. Right. Because what I typically see from, from retailers, and now I'm generalizing here massively, mm -hmm. but what I tend to see is that you ask the first question, you could say a level one question saying, hmm, okay, so what is your challenge, Mark? Yeah, yeah I'm a little bit challenged in, in, in delegating some of my tasks in the real world. Okay, boom, I now know what you need. Right. But right. no, that's not the case. Then I might do the mistake of making a three-day course for you or a six-month training program for you in terms of how to delegate. Yes. And from A to Z, right? But basically what you just needed to know was that individuals need a certain competence level. And when they have that level, I can delegate a task for them. That's right. That could be the specific point that you needed. But a second person saying the same headline of I need to be able to delegate better would have another challenge within that field. And I think that's, as, that's, we're probably touching upon the same mindset here, but that's really, really a cool journey for us to be on at the moment. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and, and I, I see some, I see some really good, uh, how do you say that? I see some awareness being created, some eye-opening moments right. where people say, ah, okay, let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's put, let's hold the brake a little bit before we go with, with something. Well, that's it. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the things you touched on there was something that Clark Quinn, uh, who's another one you really should interview if you ever get to know Clark, he, uh, he had said a long time ago, what's, what's, the, what's the least I could do for you? You know, in, in the end, he's really just saying, like, you know, the, the, let's cut out the friction. Let's get right to the point of what you need. And sometimes it always starts with that upfront analysis and really digging deep enough to know this is really all you need is this piece right here. And going back to 702010, I think that's where people miss the boat, too, is if you have a, uh, a very more, more open and connected workforce, your training becomes all that much more effective because you can tap into, you know, how effective is that training, you know, happening, you know, at the point of need, you know, you have this constant feedback loop, you know, that happens through that open communication. And so it also evolves the training. You're getting, you're getting more feedback in terms of like what's being effective or not effective to continually refine. 
So trainers should not be, or people in L&D should not be afraid of 70, 20, 10. They should be embracing it because it gives them an opportunity to get even better. Mark, I, I could actually be really curious to hear, based on all the things we've talked about, and you said in the beginning that maybe the key thing that keeps you going here is is the network that keeps on uh, opening new doors, inspiring you with new elements. Who inspires you? Are there specific people within the specific field or in general that, that keeps you keeps you sharp here? Yeah, there's, I, it, it's funny. I mean, I, there's um, there's a lot of people in a lot of different areas. But I'll, I'll give you a few names that I think should be shared out there depending on the context um, that they're in. You know, I, I, if people are not following uh, Jane Hart and her work out of the UK about the modern workplace learning, uh, it's a really great process to transform thinking of L&D. Um, Charles Jennings in 702010, a uh, real authority in that space uh, and, and the 702010 Institute. Um, I love the work of, of Harold Jarkey uh, in Canada. Uh, he does uh, what he calls personal knowledge management and focuses on PKM. And really that's about, you know, again, it's very network related. It's, it's the idea of seeking information, uh, making sense of that information, sharing that information and that process. He does. Uh, the, the godfather of a lot of it for me is uh, John Husband, uh, also of Canada. Wirearchy is the concept, another one. So these folks continually challenge um, the small and the big picture, you know, thinking for me. And, uh, the, you know, the list goes on. I mean, my network is pretty rich. But I think that's part of the whole idea of being socially connected is – It's not necessarily the amount of followers or, or people that you follow. It's constantly refining that, you know, based on your interests, your needs and goals and, and really getting in those conversations with people. And all those people I mentioned right there are completely accessible. You know, they're very much engaging online and, and, and open thinking. It makes me think about, you know, this journey of this whole amateur podcast that I'm trying to do to build here. And it's just an amazing process, you know, going from the first conversation to talking to you right now. It's it's been it's so interesting to see how you could say a little bit random on who has tickled my interest on LinkedIn. You could say yeah. that is the primary source of new connections here. To actually the amount of knowledge or inspiration I gain that I try to absorb in in my model of the world, and it just made me think about a podcast that I'm listening to right now. That and I'm just trying to see who would do you know some called Adam Grant? Oh yeah, the psychologist. Yeah, the yeah, organizational psychologist Adam Grant. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I had never heard about him before. And he's on a podcast, uh, the recent podcast from Sim Harris, mm -hmm. uh, where they're talking about also organizational stuff. And it made me think about you uh, also uh, when, when, I, when I heard him. I, he seems extremely, extremely sharp as well. Yes. Yeah, he definitely, he's got some great ideas. He's posts a, a lot on LinkedIn as well. So you'll definitely see some of his. So what, what do we need to touch upon still, Mark? You know, I don't. I I think we've touched on a lot. Um, you know, I think in the end, you know, for me, it's still about creating what I call, you know, the more social organizations. Um, you know, if I can be a little self-serving, um, my colleague James Tyre, formerly of Kellogg, he and I are in the process of writing our first book, and and that will be uh, Social by Design is the loose title for it. And it really is geared towards those small, mid-sized organizations. Uh, and really, it's a it's a throwback a little bit to the the Agile Manifesto or the Clue Train Manifesto. The idea that there's some core principles, you know, that that organizations should adhere to, to really build that more responsive, uh, connected organization, so they can, can you know they can be successful as they grow larger. 
So that's going to be interesting. I will look forward to, to reading that. Well, thanks. And not to give away the book or, or the whole knowledge pack here, but now that we have a social interaction where, of course, we are transparent and, and, yes. and eager to, to inspire each other, if, if I was listening to this podcast working in an organization that's, hmm, okay, this with systems, behaviors, beliefs, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. What should I do? Yeah. Uh, How should I get going? Yeah, I, I think for one of the big pieces for me is that you know we've gotten to a point right now where where social technology is available in many forms. So every organization has some variation either of a free social technology or they have you know some platform they've particularly purchased or have. And, and what they're really looking for is you know better understanding how do I how do I connect people here? So you know, and it comes down to I think. The first thing we've kind of talked about or a big theme we talked about here is that understanding that social is about reducing friction in your organization. You know, and that that's what it is. So I would begin the whole journey with all of this around set aside the technology and really start to analyze, you know, again, what are the systems at play in the organization that are truly driving the behaviors and you find the behaviors in the organization you know, through those beliefs. You don't start changing beliefs by you know, hanging posters on the wall or changing your email signature and this is who we are. It, it's really about looking at those behaviors that people engage in and, and analyzing why people are doing that or not. So if you're going to get that social technology to really take off in your organization, my advice, of course, is like I said, is to look closer at you know, what either encourages or inhibits the free flow of information, the sharing in an organization, uh, individual by individual, department by department. You know, there's there's opportunities to start very small or or you know a slightly larger than that. Great, Mark. Thank you so much for spending your time here on on the podcast, and I hope to to talk with you in the future again on 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 your realm. And I wish you all the best with the with the book and everything. Well, thanks for having me on. It was great to talk and share, and uh, I think you're doing an excellent job with the podcast. So keep it up. Thanks, Mark. All right, take care.